Built Not Born, episode 117. Hey everyone, it's Joe Chicarone. Today's guest is Michael Lombardi. Michael Lombardi is a former NFL general manager, three-time Super Bowl champion, best-selling author, and host of the GM Shuffle podcast. Today, Michael and I discuss his latest book, Football Done Right, setting the record straight on the coaches, players, and history of the NFL. In the book, Michael tackles the almost impossible task of ranking the top 100 NFL players of all time. He and I I have a far-ranging discussion on who's the GOAT, best receiver, best D-lineman, best at every position imaginable throughout the eras. Michael shares what he learned working with coaching legends. Michael's three mentors in his 30 years of the NFL. It's an incredible list. It's Al Davis of the Raiders, Bill Walsh of the 49ers, and Bill Belichick of the Patriots. Can you imagine those three being your mentors? Incredible. Michael also is the author of Gridiron Genius. Michael and I discuss the modern NFL, the coaches that changed the game, and legendary players like Jerry Rice, Lawrence Taylor, Tom Brady, Reggie White. Some great stories Michael shares with his years in the league. So I hope you enjoy. If you like what you hear, hit that follow button, or better yet, share this episode with a friend. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with former NFL general manager and three-time Super Bowl winner and best-selling author, Michael Lombardi. And remember, life is built, not born. Michael Lombardi, welcome back to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here, Joe. Thank you. Uh, it's, it's an honor to have you. For those looking to get to know Michael and his amazing career in the NFL, three-time Super Bowl winner, I'll direct you back to episode number 62, where Michael and I discussed his book, Gridiron Genius. We recorded back in uh, about a year ago, September of 2022. Michael is here today to talk about his new book, football done right and i uh, have so much to go over so you can get it all in first off michael what inspired you to write your second book how'd you know it was time to write it well you know when i worked at the raiders uh mark bedane who was the president of the raiders and a good friend of mine always said you know you should write a book about football because we would always talk about the history of the game and you should write a book about football and all the things. And and when I left the league, uh, I knew I was going to write a book about Walsh and Belichick and Al Davis. So that's kind of how that started. That book should have been titled uh, The Bills of Rights because that's what I wanted that book to be titled, but it ended up being Gridiron Genius. So, uh, so the next book was kind of an easy thing to decide on because I wanted to, to write a book that kind of covered the league through my eyes, through kind of how I grew up with the league from, you know, from the love affair with coaches, with Vince Lombardi to being introduced to television, the Monday night football aspect of this all, you know, and then the top players and trying to understand how the players would fit today within the game, within the framework of the game. So it kind of was a, an ongoing project my whole life. And, and I worked for 
a lot of the people that I worked for, you know, whether it was Walsh, whether it was Belichick, Ernie Acorsi at the Browns, Al Davis, all those people loved or love the history of the game. So it kind of was kind of pushed towards me. And then I, the other third part, I thought some of the coaches aren't getting their just due in terms of how they're being treated by the Hall of Fame committee. I still find it fascinating that your three mentors, three of your main mentors that you wrote about in the first book, and I love how you kind of follow up with follow-up stories in the second book, uh, Football Done Right, Al Davis, Bill Walsh, and Bill Belichick. I mean, could you have three just legendary people to learn from? I mean, how fortunate do you feel to have those three as your mentors? That's so crazy. I mean, I was blessed. I, I have had a serendipitous life. There's no doubt about that. I mean, I've been very fortunate to be a part of that and to learn from them and and to sit at the right hand of them and and still do with Coach Belichick. And so, yeah, I, I, I realized where I grew up. I realized how I was educated on this. And I tried to inject that into this book where taking some of their love of history and putting it into place. I mean, when I got on the team bus in San Francisco, Walsh would be drawing Clark Shaughnessy place. I mean, he was in love with Clark Shaughnessy. I didn't even know who the hell Clark Shaughnessy was. I had no idea, you know? And so when I started writing the book, then I kind of knew and and it kind of all came together for me. I mean, I knew it before I wrote the book, but I wanted to honor Clark and because he he's in the college hall of fame, but he can't get any sniff into the pro hall of fame. Mm-hmm. And we would not have a pro hall of fame if it wasn't for him. Yeah. So you start the book off with the five coaches that changed the game. You mentioned there's 28 coaches in the hall of fame right now. What do people need to know about the maybe there's some coaches I never heard of, like Cornell Blake. I never I watched football my whole life. I never heard of Cornell Blake. Cornell um, Blake, you never heard of Red Blake? I may have, but I, everything you told me in that book was new. But I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> his, his accomplishments was crazy. Well, I mean, I knew him because I studied Lombardi. And when Lombardi left Fordham, he went to West Point, And that's where he got his start, really, in terms of leadership and coaching. Red Blake taught him. But when you study Colonel Blake, you, you learn about the lonely end. You learn about how he split the formation out and how that changed the game and took somebody, took it. All these people moved the game from rugby to football. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know? And so Blake was really instrumental, you know, and, and he influenced a lot of coaches' lives, college coaches. Sid Gilman worked it up there. Mary Warmoth that won a national championship, worked up there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the father of the Veer offense, Bill, Bill Yeoman, worked up there. So it, 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 all these ideas kind of – people don't realize West Point, college football, West Point – That was huge. West Point was a big time program and college football was a huge program. So I wanted to honor him. Shaughnessy took the, you know, changed the game. He he put the quarterback on the map. So he had to be in there. Yeah, you mentioned there would be no forward pass without him. Yeah, you mentioned Clark Shaughnessy, a person I may have heard the name. I didn't know the, the influence they had in the game where, like you said, they took it from rugby to what you see today where it's just every down is almost a pass, right? Like it's right. like, like if the, if a team goes down the field and with six runs and scores, they talk about that all Monday. Oh my gosh, they ran the ball. Like they didn't pass. Like that's a big deal all of a sudden. But back then, like you said, uh, Clark Shaughnessy, he made the QB as the VIP on the field. I think you described it right. that way, right? Yeah. He, he, he put the value in the position. So, you know, and then Sid Gilman took that 
it turned it into Sid Gilman was saying back in the 60s, the only way you can score points is to throw the ball. This is in the 60s. You know, Miami won a title in 72, throwing 14 passes a game. So Sid was so far ahead of his time. He was really far ahead of his time. So, you know, all those things, that's where I come up with the White Oaks, where these are the five guys that really changed the game. Mm -hmm. Sid was influenced by a guy that no one ever heard of. And I write about uh, fanatical Francis in, in the book about Francis Schmidt at Ohio State who wanted to throw the ball all the time. Can you imagine an Ohio State coach that wants to throw it? But this is in the 50s. You know, and they ran him out of town. And next thing you know, he was at Washington State. His career kind of ended. But it to me, all these factors kind of came together and made this game so great. And you have a quote that it just fits with the podcast, Built Not Born. And from my favorite movie of all time, The Godfather, you have a Mario Puzo line that says, great men are not born great. They grow great. And so you go into the almost impossible task of ranking the top 100 players of all time. Yeah. So how, did, how did you go about, what kind of formula, like how, how'd you kind of set that up to compare errors? Take us through that. Yeah. So what I tried to do is I, I tried to do it like a draft board. You know, I took 150 names and said, okay, this is what I'm going to work with. These are the players that qualify. And then I'm going to take that 150 names and reduce it to 100. And I'm going to lose some guys. I mean, I didn't put Terrell Owens in there, yes. who's as good a receiver as anybody, you know? I noticed like you had like Steve Largen on there, but not T.O. And what's your thought process there? Well, I think Largen did a lot of the stuff with, I mean, his hands were incredible, right? I mean, as I talked, I, I compare him to George Costanza when he was the hands model. I mean, you know, Largen, they didn't really throw the ball. He he was kind of doing things when it was a harder, not that it was a hard, wasn't a hard game, but I just think his impact on the way and Chuck Knox's offense, mm -hmm. where they were just predominantly always run, mm -hmm. you know, he would imagine if he were a slot receiver in today's game, Largent, how many like, balls do you think he'd catch? What do you think? Like Cooper Cup? Like what would he be today? What do you think? I mean, Cooper Cup's had one incredible year. He's had some good years. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, they talk about Cup like he's going to go in the Hall of Fame. I mean, Largent has had all those years and he yeah. was getting, he was not getting the ball all the time. Yeah, it's true. True. And I, I like you even had a kicker and I can't fight you on the kicker. You had Adam Vinatieri. I mean, what, what a, a guy. I mean, I mean, that's selfish on my part. He kicked that one iron to beat me in the tuck game. I mean, yeah. I never saw a kick like that in my life. Yeah. That's, I mean, when he kicked that ball in the tuck game, that cost me a year of Fordham for my son. And <laughs> it, it's a painful memory for me forever. Uh, and, and then how about taking a step back? We spoke like in your, our last episode, we talked about the influence Al Davis, Bill Walsh, and Belichick had. But also, too, you mentioned the influence of Vince Lombardi, no relation, and Bobby Bowden had on your coaching career. Yeah. Can you speak of what Vince Lombardi had uh, to you growing up? Well, I mean, I'm a young kid growing up in South Jersey here in Ocean City. And, you know, you see this guy on your television and it's got the same last name as you and he looks like you're related to him. You, you know, I mean, everybody at, that I went to school, grade school with that was named Jones thought Tom Jones was related to them. And, you know, because, you know, he was the big star, a musical star of the day, you know. Well, we didn't realize there were a lot of Joneses and there's a lot of Lombardi. So he influenced me because of that. And I and I read everything I could read about him. I mean, I still have the books that my parents gave me, Vince Lombardi on football for one Christmas and, you know, 
And so I have an autograph of him here in my bookcase. But so he was tremendously influential in my life. And, you know, he drove me to want to do this. It was kind of like, you know, it's funny that they, they say when people watch the Ed Sullivan show and they saw young kids watched Ed Sullivan and they saw, you know, Elvis, then everybody wanted to get the music or they mm-hmm. saw the Beatles and they wanted to get the music. Well, I saw Lombardi wanted to get in football. Yeah, it sounds like Springsteen. He tells a story about the, the boss, tells a story when he saw Elvis. He wanted to be Elvis, and like Elvis right. got him in the music. How about, uh, and you also mentioned too in the book, there was a cool story. Uh, you, you just uh, alluded to it. Christmas morning, you came down once, and there was like a two box set or something, two book set. What, what was that for Christmas? It was a box set of Lombardi on football. It was like, and I, it, you know, it was in one of those, I still have it. It's, it was in one of those, gre- it was in a green thing it was Vince Lombardi on football and it was you know there was no way I I've taken that book everywhere I've ever been yeah it's like when I read instant replay Mm -hmm. in 1969 or 70 I was 10 12 years old or 11 years old and you read Jerry Kramer's account of that 69 game and then I meet Gil Brandt God rest his soul and Gil was uh you know, was on that field. I tell the story about Gil Brandt buying shoes from the the bus driver so he keep his feet warm for the army for that game in the pack or the ice ball. That's crazy. How about two Bobby Bowden pen pals with Bobby Bowden? Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, the, the, I grew up. I went to college in '77, and so we didn't have the internet. We didn't have email. Mm-hmm. Everything was done with. I had an old electronic Smith Corona uh, typewriter. And I would send letters to every coach I could to to try to get into football, to try to get a graduate assistant job at a college. And Bobby would write, return every single one of my letters. It was amazing. He returned every one. I wanted to work for him so bad. I went to Kansas. I flew myself to Kansas City to go hear him speak at a clinic. And I got to meet him there, but I could never really get to work there because at that time, Everything that was going on with college football, you had to be a graduate of the school to be a graduate assistant. Mm-hmm. That was the rules right. then. They changed it later, but you know, and so I couldn't get started. I would have loved to. I, I I thought he was great. He was very engaging when he gave his talk. He was very much he connected with people. Mm-hmm. Like you mentioned about the draft, there's so much and now analytics and so much goes into it. You know, there's scouts on the road all year round. And you, you mentioned a 75% success rate is a, a great draft percentage. And you also mentioned 15 players are now in the Hall of Fame, have the gold jacket that went yeah. undrafted. Yeah. That were just missed in the draft. Well, a lot of it too happened during the, the AFL, AFL era, you know, when the AF, when, when nobody was taking black players. And so the AFL was. And so they were getting a lot of good players. And they were scouting the black colleges. That's how the AFL got themselves. Buck Buchanan, Willie Lanier, all these great players came from those black colleges where white schools weren't taking that schools weren't taking them. Mm-hmm. And so the players went somewhere else. That's why my number 100 player is a poor guy named is a poor Kenny Washington, who was unfortunately not able to play because he couldn't break the color barrier in football in 36 he had to wait till 46 and he was done then he had played semi-pro football had two knee injuries he had to wait all that time to get in the hall so i just feel like you know to me that that's what happens i mean guys get overlooked sometimes they're just not at the right place at the right time and that's why we have so many mistakes in the draft 
I mean, you go back to Brady. I mean, what six rounds? I mean, there's five mm-hmm. five rounds of every team passed on him. It's it's crazy. Uh, the, the the human factor involved. Here, I want to go one story that I really found interesting. Jerry Rice, um, probably two or three, maybe in the, your top three, probably. I forget the number you gave him. Totally agree where you put him. And but how about this? Jerry Rice was one of the first players you had a role in drafting. And could you speak about how Walsh asked you to put a report together? Yeah, he called me up in his office one day and said, I want you to write a report uh, on background and call as many people as you can on on these three players, Altoon, Eddie Brown, and Jerry Rice. And the personnel director at the time, Tony Rosano, loved this kid, Chris Burkett, at Florida State. So I did him too. I think it was at Jackson State. And so uh, we ended, I, I ended up, I had to call all the people and colleges and all that. I found out so much stuff about Eddie Brown and Toon and and Jerry and all that. I mean, look, we were fortunate. We we were probably would have taken Eddie Brown in that draft had he made it to us because Eddie Brown was dynamic. Eddie Brown was a rare commodity. But the, the Paul Brown took him. I could still remember being standing next to Coach Walsh, and he's on the phone with Paul Brown, the senior. And uh, he says, "You would you want to trade up? And Paul Brown says, no, we're going to take Eddie Brown right here. Walsh handed me the phone back and said, we'll just take Rice with the next pick when we when it's our pick. You'll settle. <laughs> yeah. what, what did Eddie Brown wind up doing? What was his career like? He went to Cincinnati, had a great career, but he got a lot of – he got Boomer threw the ball so damn hard, and he played in cold weather that his hands kind of went on him. And he got, like, stitches in all his hands, and he he, he, he lost his lower body, lost his juice. He wasn't a big man. He was like 5'11". Option quarterback in high school, went to Tyler Junior College, I found out, and he graduated from Tyler Junior College in one year. He took 64 units and got them all completed in one year. Amazing, right? Yeah, I know. And then he went to transfer to the University of Miami with Howard Schnellenberger, and he was just dynamic. But when I called every high school coach in Miami about Eddie Brown, they would talk about him in reverence. Mm-hmm. Like they talked about him in reverence. They said, this is the greatest player of all time. Wow. You mentioned getting back to Rice. You mentioned one of the things that made him so great is that he wasn't trying to prove anything to other people. He was trying to prove it to himself. Yeah, he he was self-motivated. He didn't care about anything. Look, as a rookie, I think he had 13 drops. Wow. I mean, he dropped a lot of balls as a rookie, and he had great hands, which then taught me about there's two grades every scout gives a player, right? You and I go watch a guy one day of practice in the middle of October, and this guy's making great catches. And then you watch him, and he makes great catches. I go watch him three days later, and he catches some but drops some. Well, that's the definition of – so what we both have to do as scouts is predict, can he overcome his inconsistencies? That's a key thing, right? And if I give him a six, that means I'm saying he'll overcome his inconsistencies. If you give him a four, you're saying he won't. We're both saying he's got hands that are really good, mm-hmm. but were they're inconsistent. So the argument is narrowed down, and Rice just overcame any inconsistencies. And then you you write too, what separates great from elite is a willingness to keep improving and working. Yeah, and the, he never stopped. Yeah, and then the great ones have that, right? They just keep going back to the lab, and they they stay. They, Brady, like you see him with his TV, whatever it's called, system. Like he's working out, like he's twenty two years old when he's forty, and it's yeah, it's crazy. Like, where does that come from? Is that innate? Is that taught? 
Yeah, I think it's just part of who they are. It's their DNA. They can't deal with not doing it. Then you mentioned too that rice. Do you you mentioned you still have that picture of rice in your office? Is that still hanging yeah, behind my desk? Yeah, not this office. This is my home office. I have one downtown Ocean City. I have a picture of rice when I was at the Raiders holding the AFC trophy. Really? Awesome. What's that remind you circle. of when you see that? What's it remind you of? It, it reminds me of my career. You know, start with him and then went to a Super Bowl with him at another team. Mm-hmm. Kind of yeah. like how fortunate I am. You know, that is that is awesome. How about a couple of funny things? Can you describe the difference when I mean, you're, you're rating like defensive backs? You mentioned the difference between a breakfast corner and a dinner corner. <laughs> well, you know, breakfast corners, which were the, th- the thrill of the game. When you're a breakfast corner, you win at the line of scrimmage. You win early. Breakfast comes early, right? You win early. You're able to defeat the guy with your hands. You jam him at the line and he can't get off in the route. A dinner corner plays off coverage, reads the route, senses the quarterback drops, and then breaks on the ball, wins late in the route. You know, he can win late in the route. And so those are guys are hard because they're reading the quarterback's drops. They're kind of messing with you. Rob Woodson could do both, right? Rob mm-hmm. Woodson could be a breakfast center. He was just great, period. Dion could do both. Although Dion wasn't physical with the line, but he could go up there and play if he wanted to. He could do anything. Yep. Like Night Train Lane, he was going to have to win it. You know, some of those guys had to win it. Willie Brown had to win at the line. Mm-hmm. But the, the rules let him win at the line. So the breakfast corner wins early. The dinner corner wins late in the route. Would, and when you can win late in the route, you'll get more interceptions. Would you say that you're did, playing the ball. Yeah. Would you say, like, I'm just thinking from from what I remember the last couple of years, like Asante Samuel, like dinner corner? Like jumping around. dinner corner. Play off coverage. Read the route. Some people say guess, you know, like Bradbury for the Eagles is a breakfast corner. Mm-hmm. He's got to win early in the route. Okay. You know, right. he's got to win early in the route. Slay is, could be a little bit of both mm-hmm. at times, you know, and sometimes when you're just a breakfast corner and you lose your speed, you don't want to get up there anymore because mm-hmm. you're afraid people are going to take you over the top. Mm-hmm. You know, now if you're playing Tyree kill, it don't matter if you're, bre- you ain't going to be able to be a breakfast corner against him. Yeah, if you he, are, if you are, you got to have help on top. Gotcha. I remember uh, Richard Sherman was quoted back, a couple months back saying, when did you know you had to leave the game? He said he was trying to cover uh, Devonta Smith. And he's like, oh, I hope they don't throw it to him this one. I can't keep up with him. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, how about this? And he's a perfect example of, of what a, a, a dinner corner is. He played off cover three. Mm-hmm. He was a wide receiver in college, transferred over to defensive back, had great hands, had great instincts for the position. You know, and and he could and you couldn't get the ball over his head. He was big. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get the ball over his head. How about this? You also mentioned a national anthem player. <laughs> every funny. day is the national anthem. So it's a guy that struggles to learn. And so every day you got to play the national. It's like a baseball game. They play the national anthem every day. It's a new day, right? Well, when you have a guy who's a national anthem player, he can't he can't remember what he learned yesterday into today. Yeah. <laughs> so it's that's a hard thing for a coach. When you got a guy like that, it's hard. So you don't want a national anthem player. You want to minimize unless them. Really, unless he's really good. All right. How about another funny line I thought was for offensive linemen, the, the dirty uniform test for the offensive linemen. You're talking yeah, about I mean, if when you go to a game now, some of these guys don't get their uniforms dirty. Mm-hmm. That's a great lineman. I remember we played t- – we played Tony Baselli in Jacksonville. The mm-hmm. guy's uniform wasn't even dirty. There was no grass stains on it. Whereas some guys, they're, they're filled with grass because they're on the ground too much. Linemen shouldn't be on the ground. Mm-hmm. 
it, getting over to the line. Do you still believe, like you hear a lot, like coming in Philly, you hear during draft time, like they always draft a defensive lineman or offensive lineman. Do you believe, right. you mentioned how wideouts are, you write in the book, wideouts are the side courses in the steakhouse. You build your team from the line out, like like the steakhouse right. line. Is that still that's true that, And that's why, I, you know, one of the things I was determined to do is to not have my top 100 filled with all the receivers. Because mm-hmm. most draft boards have too many receivers up there. Yeah. And you got to have linemen to win games. There's really good wideouts in almost every draft, right? But like when you have a difference maker, a defensive tackle or left tackle, that you got to draft them instead of the wideout, right? Right. So like you take the Eagles last year, they got 60 sacks of their 70 from the defensive line, right? It's a real simple game, Joe. So if we go outside and play in the backyard as kids, if we counted, if we said the rules are you got to count the three Mississippi before you can rush, not many people got open. But if you said we count the five Mississippi, people could get open. If you said seven Mississippi, everybody got open. Well, think of football that way. If you can block like the Eagles can block, you know, guys are going to get open. A couple uh, players just where they fell. I think you put Marino under seventy-one Dodgers, right? Yeah. So tell me about that. Well, I mean, unfortunately for Danny, went to a Super Bowl his second year in the league. They went four years with Dan Marino without making the playoffs. Mm. Think about that: four years with the winningest coach of all time, and my personal favorite. I didn't, I didn't work with Dan. But he's always been my personal favorite quarterback. He was great. His release, his anticipation. You know, I loved him. I, I I feel badly putting him where I put him, but you know, he didn't win enough. He didn't win a Super Bowl. It's hard when you're a great quarterback. Not to, Warren Moon didn't make my top 100. Right? Mm-hmm. Warren Moon's thrown for 28 miles of yards <laughs> in the league, and he and you know, I mean, he didn't win, and he had and Warren Moon was, as I write about in the book, was on one of the greatest teams of the Houston Oilers teams of the 80s, was as good of any team, better than most teams. in the. I mean, I don't know if there's a team as good as them. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you look at that team all over, they were incredible. The House of Pain and Doug. Yeah, they were, yeah, love you blue. Love you blue, that's it, yeah. How about this, your top, so the GOAT, Brady, no, no denying that. Number one, you nailed it. I think LT was two. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. And then how'd you decide between LT and Reggie White? How'd you decide who went ahead of there? Because LT changed the game. Okay. We would not have dual blocking without LT. Mm-hmm. When Walsh moved the guard and decided when LT lined up first in the league, he was an outside linebacker. Running backs blocked outside linebackers when that when when he started to play. And then you figured out run, nobody can block. So that's when Walsh designed designed the, what they call the Molly block, which is the guard ends up coming out to block him because he had it. He changed the game. I mean, Reggie White's dominant, but LT was just another level of dominant. I mean, you're talking about splitting hairs. The guy, the guy was incredible. I mean, I can remember Belichick. I asked him. I said, "I never see you with a call sheet in your hand." He says, "I got Lawrence Taylor. I'll just play flip cover too." It's and one, some of my earliest memories uh, as an Eagle fan was when Parcells coached the Giants with LT kind of in his prime and Buddy Ryan coached the Eagles with Reggie White in his prime. And those defenses were crazy. Oh, it was just awesome. It was just so fun brutal. to watch. A, a couple quick things here. Touching on two Eagles. Wanted to see how close they came to making your list. Okay. First one, Chuck Benarek. I, was thought, I mm. thought I might see him on the list. 
I, I actually the one I think I I probably should have put on the list. I, I would have put him probably at a hundred with Steve Van Buren. Okay. I should have put Steve Van Buren, but I put Kenny Washington there for a reason. Yep. I mean, Ben Eric was good too, but I left Nishki off too. Yeah, true. Okay. And how about safety wise? I think you had um it Ed Reed, right? Was Ed Reed made the list? Oh, yeah. How Ed about Reed. Brian Dawkins? How close was he making the list? I, I think Brian was in the 150. I think Brian's a great player, but I thought Ed Reed was really he he was a a middle of the field player that was hard to throw the ball in the middle of the field. Mm-hmm. What did you learn writing the book? Like Seth Godin, who's been a guest on the show a couple of times, says like writing clarifies your thought process. It does. And yeah. So when you wrote after, before the book and after, what did you learn about yourself and the game? What, what came apparent after you wrote the second book? A, a better appreciation for the game, the older players. I mean, Johnny United spit up blood every time he got up off of the ground. You know, when he threw the ball, nobody protected the quarterback. The innovators of the game, I learned a lot about them. And I, what I learned about is the impact of television. You know, we all, we fought wars to try to stop communism. And yet in reality, the the power of what other people see you doing stop, creates it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Monday Night Football was just incredible, incredible. As a kid, the power of that show. I mean, I write about this in the book. CBS had Gunsmoke. They had Andy Griffith. They had Mayberry RFD. They had no interest in football on Monday nights. NBC had Rowan and Martin and Doris Day. They had no interest in football on Monday nights. ABC had nothing on Monday nights. They couldn't get anything. Bowling leagues dominated Monday night. At Ocean City, we used to, when I was growing up, we had three bowling alleys in the town. Three. There was only 10,000 people lived here in the winter. When Monday night football came in, bowling leagues died on Monday. It ended. The power of Monday Night Football made this league so great. Cosell belongs in the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Oh, without without question. So iconic. So iconic. You mentioned how some of the the, the price, some of the older the appreciation for the older players. You wrote that Jim Otto. Did I write this down right? Of the Raiders had seventy four surgeries. Is that? I mean, it's unbelievable. He said I had a leg amputated. That is crazy. Seventy four. Oh my god. And never flinched. I mean, man was tougher than I mean, he's still tough. He's still he's still breathing, he's still alive. Yeah. Now, what's uh, writing wise? Like you're what getting to the creative side. What's your writing process like wrapping up here? Like, is that every day five that Hemingway 500 words? 500? I mean, I still write every day. I write the Daily Coach. Mm-hmm. Part of the Daily Coach community we're part part of now. When yeah. I was writing the book, I would get up really early and I'd try to write a thousand words a day. So it took me eight months to write the book, research. Afternoons is pretty spent on rewriting. You know, writing is rewriting. Yeah. That, that, you know, the thousand that you would write, how many would you keep? Like, say you write a thousand words, how many would actually stay? Yeah. I mean, you would keep a thousand, but it wouldn't be the same thousand you started with. Yeah, <laughs> you sure. have to rewrite it again, you know? <laughs> I learned not to worry about changing, uh, you know, if I had to delete things. I have a whole file full of scraps. I mean, the book was 150,000 words when I submitted it. Wow. It got cut down to 102. Wrapping up here, if there's a third book in you, what direction would that go? The next book I'm going to write about is I want to take the the practical approach to coach, what makes a great coach, and combine it with the clinical approach to coaching. Wow. Build the perfect coach. That is awesome. And speaking of a coach, I know you and Belichick go back 30 years. I see you have a leadership group with Belichick starting. Can you speak about that? 
We have a thing called the Daily Coach Community. Bill's going to come speak to the community, but uh, myself, George Raveling, uh, Kamadi Ramsey, Alec, Trevor, all of us have kind of gotten involved. We started the Daily Coach four years ago with a newsletter. Still goes out to everybody every day, every morning. We have 36,000 people that read it every morning. Yep. And uh, it's, a, it's basically everybody needs a coach. And so we try to do that. That's great. I catch you on LinkedIn each day. And I love the daily writing. It's fantastic. So, but Michael, I think that's about as good as a spot to any to wrap this up. Michael, I'd like to thank you for joining us. The guest is former general manager, Michael Lombardi. The book is Football Done Right, available everywhere. Michael, if people are looking for you and what you do online, where can we find you? M Lombardi NFL at Twitter, M Lombardi NFL at Instagram. Uh, I mean, I'm in those two places. I'm all over. Awesome. Michael, it's so great to see you. Thank you for joining. Thank you much. Bye-bye. Take care. Hey, everyone. It's Joe Chicarone. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to see the video of this, please check out our new YouTube channel to see this entire episode on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search for Joe Chicarone or Built Not Born Podcast. Thanks so much. Talk soon.